You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So uh, I want to now invite you, as is our custom, uh, to open a Bible with me. And if you uh, have a smartphone or a device that would get you to Matthew chapter 10, please do that. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see a paperback Bible in the tray in front of you. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. If this is one of the first times you've opened the Bible, we're grateful to invite you along. And, and as we say regularly, when, when we open the Bible, something amazing happens. The Bible actually begins to open us. Uh, that is, as we begin to expose, the word we'll use is exposit, that which is in the Bible, the Holy Spirit powerfully begins to expose that which is in us. And so uh, you'll see, if, it's, if you find one of the blue paperback Bibles out of the tray in front of you, we'll be on page 475 in the 10th chapter of Matthew, picking up where we left off in our own journey as a church through the book of Matthew. And so as we've been walking through this gospel, literally the word gospel just simply means good news, this good news of Jesus according to Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament and the first of the four gospels. That is the, the good newses of the life, ministry, and the, the work of Jesus, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, we were just introduced to a couple of weeks ago, a tax collector, an outcast, a person who had aligned himself against his own people, a, a traitor of sorts, and Jesus calls him to himself. And then uh, this, we find ourselves in chapter 10 in the second major discourse. Uh, and if you want to, to kind of see uh, what I mean by that, you can flip when you get to uh, when you get to chapter 10, you can flip over to the first words of chapter 11. And the first words of chapter 11 say this, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, and then he went on from there. You'll remember the first major discourse was the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. And it was in chapter 5, 6, and 7. And at the very end of chapter 7, you find something almost identical to this. When Jesus finished saying these things, There'll be five of these. There'll be five different discourses, sermons, instructions that Jesus speaks. And here we are in the second one that takes up the whole of chapter 10. So we're going to read from verse 5 uh, all the way through verse 25. And we're going to spend most of our time picking up where we left off from verse 16, uh, where you see the, page, the, the paragraphs break all the way to verse 25. But I want you to see why it is that we do this, and especially how this fits into what we as Christians celebrate as the season of Advent. Uh, don't be scared, it's a big churchy word. It, it just simply, it, it simply means arrival. That is the coming of Jesus. Advent then, it's not in the Bible, you won't find that word anywhere in the Bible and how we celebrate Advent. The Christians over history have freedom to celebrate it however they wish, right? But it's typically the four Sundays, the season before Christmas, that is the birth of Jesus, the, the coming, the incarnation of Jesus. And so there's many ways to do it. Most people celebrate Advent, right, by putting on their Christmas lights on their house, right, because no one, only a pagan would put up Christmas lights before that. That's not true. You can celebrate Christmas all around for all I care. Uh, so, so the season of Advent for us is the coming of Jesus. And as Christians, historically, we begin to celebrate by simply contemplating what that means and then adopting ourselves an, uh, into or adopting a posture of receptivity, of sitting back and receiving. And so one of the things you're going to hear me say for the next couple of weeks is this. The, the, the celebration of Advent and the celebration of Christmas is one thing and one thing alone. It is receiving Jesus. 
Now, that will come as a challenge and maybe also as a restful thing to hear. Because what if I told you the one, the only important thing you need to do this Christmas is to receive Jesus? There's only one thing. By grace, through faith, in Christ, we receive him. And I know for many of you, that'll be like, well, I was going to do this other thing. I, I know, I know, this is, this is provocative. But we see then that the receptivity that we adopt as a posture in Advent, because Jesus is being sent, is reflected in the way that Christians also are sent. So if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, maybe you're just curious about who Jesus is and what this thing is called the church, then I'm really grateful you're here. You're at the very end of this chapter, uh, chapter 10, this discourse, you find kind of a, a summary that Jesus gives to the sending out of his, of his disciples. He says, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, received him who sent me. And so the mission of God to send Jesus to come to be with us and like us and for us, to not be a God who was up there and out there, but a God who is like us, who takes on our own form and then takes on our own sin, frailty, and weakness and death. That mission of God points to the mission of his people, that is who Christians are and what they are about. In the same way that Conversely, the mission of God's people, his disciples, as we see in chapter 10, points to the mission of God. They are inextricably linked. They are inseparable. The way that Jesus is sent to us is identical and inextricably linked to the way that you and I as Christians are sent to the world. And the way that you and I are sent to our neighbors and to the nations is inextricably linked to the way that Jesus was sent to us. So as we reflect on the sending of the disciples here, we're actually reflecting on what it means to receive Jesus who was sent in this same way. So beginning in verse 5 of chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace Come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. 
For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. A brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? I pray that this becomes God's word to you and to me, more than ink on a page, but the very voice of God to us. There are two things I think Matthew wants us to know here by recording Jesus' words. One is as disciples are sent out, you see what to expect. And secondly, how to endure it. And so as Jesus is sending these disciples, he gives them, I think in this passage, what to expect, but then he also gives us, that is, those who are called disciples, Christians sent out on mission that that Jesus himself begun, how to endure it. So we'll spend most of our time talking about what the disciples were to expect and, and then wrap up thinking about how it is that they and And in that sense, we are to endure it. Because after all, those who are sent out and are received, Jesus says, are ultimately receiving Jesus, then there's something about Jesus that we're meant to see in the sending of his disciples. Now, in this, like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a couple of qualifications to make. Anytime Jesus begins teaching, there are typically about three different layers to what he's saying. The first layer is exactly, or, or like think specifically, what Jesus was saying to the specific people for that specific time and place. That is, he was tangibly, historically speaking to disciples about this event. You will do this thing. Kind of the second layer under it are, are the principles that then apply to also the disciples and followers of Jesus that would come after them, after the apostles. And then the third layer, kind of the, the more eternal, or, or even we'll say the eschatological, that is the end times, the mysteries that will be revealed at the end of time that are layered in here as well. Now, all of those layers are always working together. They're never to be separated. And yet at the same time, as they point to one another, sometimes they don't apply. For example, you and I are not the 12 apostles. I don't know, you might be in a Christian tradition that, uh, that celebrates like that they're still apostles. And I'd say, that's great. Uh, the, the apostles, having met with Jesus, would walk along the road and their very shadow would heal the sick. And so if you walk around and the people you walk around who are sick get healed, cool, you're an apostle. However, if that's not the case, and I, I, I commend you, let's go, if that's the case, let's go to Stanford. Let's shut that sucker down. Let's just walk around. I'm not kidding. Like that's the thing. There weren't hospitals in the apostles' day. And so for them to bring their sick to the apostles for healing was something. So there are things that Jesus is saying that apply to the apostles that don't necessarily apply to us. Like he says, you're going to go, you're going to heal, you're going to raise the dead. Now, praise God, if you go to the cemetery and dead people start coming to life, that's awesome. 
If that's not the case, then there are still principles, the layer beneath that, that we can learn what it means to look to Jesus for these things. We still pray for healing. We still pray for resurrection. We still pray for these things. But then the layer beneath that, or the mysterious layer, are the things that are eternally true about the return. Did you hear that? Of the Son of Man. And those are always mysterious. That is, they are apocalyptic. They are subject to revelation, and, and, and all I would say to you is, as we work our way through the, the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see more and more that Jesus says some things that are intentionally cryptic because you're not meant to understand it. You're meant to trust him to bring it about, right? So the first thing he told the disciples in, in the first two chapters of Acts, when they asked Jesus, when are you going to come back? When are you going to restore your kingdom? When are you going to make all things new? And he says, none of your business. He says, literally, it is not for you to know. But it is for you to be witnesses here in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so also we have here these layers of things that apply to the apostles, principles that apply to you and I who seek to follow Jesus and be sent out like his disciples, and yet also eternal mysteries that cause us to yearn for and trust in Jesus for their answer. So as we begin to reflect on what it is that we would expect, what is, it, what, what is it that the apostles originally expected, and the principles that might apply to us, we'll try to connect those dots as we go along. So we're discerning how these kinds of things are interrelated. What's true for the apostles, what's true for us, and then what's true for the people of God forever and ever. All kind of wrapped up in here in this sending out. And, in the, and as we kind of uh, you know, think through this, this passage, I want you to also think of this as a manual for mission. That is, there are principles here that aren't necessarily specifically for the apostles for this one little moment they were sent out. They're also for the people who would follow after Easter, the New Testament church that would emerge after the resurrection of Jesus. And how do we know that? Because he begins to say, you're going to be persecuted. Here's what you can expect. Opposition. And then did you hear the way he listed the opposition that they would experience? Persecution, people are going to turn you over, kill you, torture you, betray you, right? Well, well, that's interesting because we don't have any real record in the scripture or otherwise of the disciples being persecuted or tortured until Jesus is resurrected. And so what he's saying is a preparation, not just for the way they might be rejected in this little mission they're sent out on, but it's also preparation in principle for what they would experience after Jesus was resurrected. And as so, it's a manual for mission. The mystery of what it means for you and I to compel people to see and follow Jesus is all right here, albeit some of it quite mysterious. And so we get a picture, not only of our own mission, but of the mission of Jesus. And if there's kind of two parts that I would say are in this kind of, this component of what we expect as disciples of Jesus, there's one, there's the paradox of being sent, and then two, there's the offense of the message. So look at the paradox. We are sent as a paradox, as serpents and doves. Did you see that? Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as snakes or serpents, and yet innocent as doves. Now, this paradox is already been introduced to us as we saw last week. There's a paradox already in play. Did you hear it? They, they go and they have a proclamation to make, and yet they have a ministry of compassion to those who are hurting. It's not either or, it is both and. And this is provocative for us, because I know for many of you, one of those things sounds awesome. And you might, left to your own sinful devices, 
gravitate towards it to the detriment of the other. And so many of you in this room are all about proclamation, right? Tell them. Tell those wicked people, repent. But you might be shocked and provoked to hear Jesus say, care. Care for the needs around you. Step into the mess of the uncleanness. And then for many of you, maybe that's, maybe that's the thing that you gravitate towards. Like, I just care. I just love. I just, want to, I just hurt with everyone. Right? And, and I would say that's amazing. Thank God for you reflect the heart of Jesus in that. And yet, you have a message to declare. We aren't sent to be the saviors of the world. We're sent as the ones who have met him. And so they're both there. Do you hear the paradox? To unwaveringly declare, turn, there's a king. The king has come and he's taking over. And yet care for those who are wounded, for those who are weary, for those who are scarred. Do you get it? The paradox of being sent is what we can expect. And so while last week we saw that Jesus is sent and then therefore sending us to the lost, the paradox of caring and proclaiming is also met with the, the paradox of the strategy he gives, right? He says, you've been given grace freely. Don't charge for what you do. And yet, what does he say after that? That you will be, you will be generously investing and in sending the next. And so he says, don't do you hear that kind of like strategically? Like, trust me, live in the world in such a way that you, you depend upon, as we saw the, the prayer of the previous chapter, that the laborers will be raised up. And trust and generosity flowing through God in these people that will sustain and propel and fuel the mission to the nations with the gospel. And at the same time, don't hoard. Be, be radically generous. And at the same time, this won't make you rich. You'll be tempted in adversity to turn from one of these particular things. You'll be tempted to think like, well, I don't know if, I don't know if the church or I don't know if we're going to make it through this. We need to start saving up and hoarding our resources. And in your life and mine, that's one of the greatest temptations. It's one of, one of, the, one of the most powerful things that we can do on a given Sunday is let go of money. Because more often than not, it won't let go of us. And so he's saying generosity declares a coming kingdom. And at the same time, we are tempted to think like, I can't hold on. I can't let go of that. I've got to hold on to that. And, he's, and he says a rebuke to you and to me. Stop hoarding clothes, right? Stop stocking up on more than you need. So be strategic and yet be generous. Go to everyone. But did you also hear the paradox? But there are some places that will reject you and you shake even the dust off your feet. Now, that wouldn't have shocked these people there because that's what a Jewish uh, teacher or rabbi would have done when they entered a Gentile town. What's radical here is that he says, shake the dust off your feet, not just for the pagans and the Gentiles. Shake the dust off your feet even for the religious. Because a day of judgment is coming. You, you freely give. Did you hear that? Freely, generously give this good news. And yet, beware. Those who reject you reject me. And this is the danger for many of you who right now you're, you're kind of sitting like, I don't know if I really want to follow this Jesus. And, and here's what I will tell you is that the consequences for rejecting Jesus are not immediately apparent. And that's dangerous. Because you can sit and listen to what I say and think, that sounds great, maybe one day I'll get to it. Or, I'd rather not. And then, here's the thing, you might just live on your life. And nothing might happen to you. You might just go on your way and live your merry life. 
And yet, do you hear the paradox of being sent? We come with a generous proclamation of God's love, and at the same time, the impending consequences for those who would reject God. So, what do we expect? Well, you hear more paradoxes. Verse 16, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst wolves. Already there's a paradox, is there not? You're going to do what, Jesus? If if you just read that like it is, that just means, hey, I'm going to send you to feed the wolves. And we saw last week as Trey kind of walked through what it means to be a sheep. I mean, sheep, after all, are dirty, filthy, smelly, and fairly unintelligent. And yet we also see the compassion of Jesus, right? Uh, on one hand, like, you know, that, they're gross, but, but on the other hand, who here has hated a sheep, right? There's, there's none of you who are like, I hate sheep. Like, no one's ever been, sheep are never, have never been on the top of any food chain. You've never run from sheep a day in your life. And so it's a picture of, like, they're not on the top of the food chain, and yet we are promised that even though Jesus sends us out, it's not to be fed, but he as a shepherd will go with us. But it's quite the paradox, is it not? Okay, Jesus, I'll go. Let's go. And he says, fine, I'm going to send you out, and you're going to look like a meal. You're, when you go out, you are going to look like something the world will want to lick its chops and devour. And it will do its best to do just that. And so the paradox of sacrifice, of caring, of proclamation also is in the paradox of being sent out and yet at the, t- at the same time knowing that this is a dangerous place. Think of what's being implied here. Because of sin, the world is a hostile environment for Jesus and for his people. And for his people. Make no mistake about it. This is a hostile environment for those of us who take upon the name of Jesus. Now, we'll get, we'll get to this as we kind of unpack the rest of the text, but, but for now, just see that Jesus is, is not mincing words. He's saying, you should not feel entitled to safety any more than a sheep should feel safe surrounded by wolves. In fact, a miraculous and distinct circumstance would have to be in place for them to feel safe. And so look at the paradox of what we will expect as followers of Jesus sent out to follow in his footsteps like he was sent to us. You will not be safe. And yet, you'll have nothing to fear. And both of those are true at the same time. Did you hear what he says? All of these awful things are going to happen. Beware. Beware, you're going to be dragged, you're going to be led to to have to bear witness before people who hate you, people who have rejected you and rejected me. And he says, not if, right? And this is where one of you are like, no, I don't really like that one. No, not if, but what does he say about the suffering and the persecution that will come for for his disciples? Not if, when, verse 19 says, when they deliver you over. Do not be anxious. Do you hear the paradox? You are not safe, and yet you have nothing to fear. You are like sheep amongst wolves, ready to be devoured, and yet perfectly protected by your shepherd. I will go with you. When you need to speak, for example, he says, it's not even you who speak. So again, what is he implying there? You're not alone. When you speak, it's not even you who speak. 
It's the spirit of your father who's speaking right through you. So see the paradox. They're sent out as sheep among wolves. And then he gives us another paradox for how we will operate. As, as we think about what we might expect in that very same verse, he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpent, innocent as doves. So let's, let's break down the, kind of those, like the paradox of the sheep and wolves and then the, like the serpent and the doves, right? And this is what I will simply say to many of you is like, Maybe this idea of following Jesus sounds fun to you. It sounds great, and maybe there are benefits that come along with, oh, Jesus is going to protect me when I die and I get to go to heaven. That's great. That's true and awesome. And yet, down deep, down deep, you really think Jesus sent you out as a wolf. Down deep, you're like, oh, yeah, Jesus is sending me out like a wolf, right? Wolf pack, let's go, right? And friend, I want to speak to this even... This, this is a gross overcompensation for fear and insecurity. It's an overfixation with you will not be safe that comes completely, completely to the detriment of believing you have nothing to fear. And man, there's, there's recent history that shows this, right? I mean, haven't the last couple of years, as, as we face together as a, as a church, as a culture, as a, as a world even, a pandemic, Right? Have, you, have you seen these things? Have you seen these things come alive? And people, in essence, wanting to like, I don't know, people, in essence, wanting as best they can to disprove Jesus here. Have you seen it? Have you heard the obsession with safety? Have you heard, like, everything must be safe. There must be no risk. We must category, categorically eliminate all risks. And it's like, good luck. Or we disagree with Jesus when he says you have nothing to fear. Oh no, you must fear. You must fear. You must fear everyone's going to die from this thing. Or you must fear because the, the, the government's going to take everything over. Did you hear it? That's fine, but I heard it from people who call themselves Christians. And I wanted to say, you haven't read Matthew 10. You're not guaranteed safety. You're not entitled to safety. Don't talk that way. And I don't know if you noticed, but God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Do you feel the tension in Jesus' words now? Do you feel the need to kind of push back and go, oh, man, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go where it's dangerous and uncomfortable. I don't want to sacrifice my safety. Or maybe you're like, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to let go of my fears. After all, if, I'm, if, I, if I stop being afraid of everything, what would I even do with my time in my life? What would I even read then? But just recognize we're wanting, because of our own lack of trust in these two things that are paradoxically expected of disciples and what they will experience, we want to, out of insecurity or fear, rebel against them. And I want you to know that Jesus offers this paradox as a, as a pointer to what he is like. And people overcompensate, right? I mean, isn't, like, isn't, isn't one of the tendencies you've seen to like, well, fine, if we're going to be sheep among wolves, then let's adopt the tactics of wolves and let's be wolfish ourselves. Have you seen this? And let me speak. Um, I think one of, the most, uh, one of the most fragile and difficult conversations that we're going to be having over the next few decades is over, the, over issues of gender and sexuality. 
And I don't want you to be afraid of that. And I hope you don't like that. that. doesn't cause too much tension. The Bible gives us a clear, a beautiful design that God gives us that we regularly don't like and rebel against. We're not shocked by that. But, but this conversation requires a lot of grace, and I hope that you would show me some. But I've seen this, and I want to speak specifically to men who have seen their fears and insecurities rise and their response is to what? To be trusting sheep? No. Like, no, we need to be wolves. Like, okay. Good luck with that. And I get that, man. I get where that comes from. But we, we run from these, these changing cultures and changing times, and we run to things that, that won't actually solve the problem. And, and I hear, man, I hear a lot of men like, man, we need to be more masculine, more manly. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah the problem is the, in the world is there's not enough beards. Right. That, that's the problem. Society's falling apart. What we need? We need more facial hair. Okay. You get, you get the picture? And so you can run into like a hyper-masculinity or hyper, frankly, anti-masculinity. And notice, I would just say to you, the solution isn't to run to one of the extremes. The solution is to be like Jesus. You don't need to be more masculine. You need to be more Christ-like. You don't need to be more feminine. You need to be more Christ-like. Who perfectly personified these paradoxes. Who was fierce and yet gentle, who is courageous, and yet overwhelmingly compassionate. You get it? There will be a lack of safety. There will be threats. And yet, we are called to live fearlessly. And most of our tactics, as we see here in strategy and mission, often are fueled not by these truths that Jesus predicts that will be true for us, but instead, they're fueled by fear and insecurity. And we'll come back to that. Notice what will happen as they are sent out. In these difficult circumstances, difficult, painful suffering that they will endure, notice what they have to hope in. Jesus will meet you in the mission. Now, there's a mysterious, apocalyptic phrase in the middle of this that, that most people disagree on. And again, I believe that means typically that it fits into that third category of something you'll probably know when Jesus comes back, but not before then. He says, I'm going to be with you to speak. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to speak, and you don't have to. And these awful things are going to happen. Brother going to betray brother. Father going to betray children. Children going to betray parents. And you will be hated. And yet, we see here, in the midst of all that, you, when it says, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel, in verse 23, before the Son of Man comes. Well, again, what does he mean by that? And, and there's, there's a lot of mystery. And so here's, here's how I would kind of present it to you in light of how Jesus typically talks. And we'll especially see this in, I think, the 24th chapter of Matthew. But it's kind of like, is he talking to the disciples and how even just in the next couple of chapters, he meets them out there preaching and teaching? Or is he talking to, to you and me that that as we go proclaiming, he will be present with us and never leave us or forsake us? Or is he saying that as we're on mission, we will continue to be on mission until he comes back riding on the clouds? And the answer is yes. On one hand, he's speaking of something that will happen, you'll see in the next couple of chapters. He's going to meet them. He's like, hey, you're not even going to make it. I'm going to send you out, but don't worry, I'll meet you out there. Don't worry, I'll, I'll meet you. You can anticipate me being with you. On the other hand, he says to you and to me, who now we have a message of reconciliation, that the king has come, that the kingdom of heaven, you see here, in his healing and his proclamation, the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world. 
The king is broken into this broken world, and we have a message to tell, and he will meet us as we declare. He'll be present. He won't leave us. And yet, on the other hand, this mission will not be completed by us. After all, you can bring your kingdom. You can't bring someone else's. And so he's saying to you and to me, as we live in the world, look, I'm going to meet you out there. Don't worry if it seems like the mission isn't complete. Don't worry if you experience adversity. Don't worry. I'll meet you out there. I'll come back to make all things new. And so for the disciples, it meant that they would literally meet him. And for, thus, for those who would follow in his footsteps, or, or their footsteps in that case, post-Easter, post-resurrection, it means that Jesus would be present with them. I love, I love the Apostle Paul. He says that he was on trial, almost word for word living this out. And he says that all of these people who had come with him, he just lists like, this person abandoned me, this person left me. And then he just kind of has this thing he throws in, but the Lord never left my side. And so also, as you are sent out to live in light of what Christ has done, that the king has come and the kingdom of this world is passing away, it's going to be dangerous, but you have nothing to fear because Jesus will meet you in the mission. Think of it this way, Jesus will meet you before the mission is complete. This builds in us, or as I think Jesus intended for the apostles, a sense of perseverance. This innate sense of, even I would say, like, stubbornness. We're going to live on mission. We're going to be walking with him until he comes back. We have something to say. We have good news of a kingdom that has come in the king that lays down his life for his kingdom. We have good news to say, and we will not stop declaring it until we see him. And then, as you've heard me say before, we'll stop telling people about Jesus and we'll just, as we're bowing, just point. There he is! And so, friend, be encouraged. In a world, remember that we, we are, we're never entitled to safety. Because the world is, because of sin, the world is hostile to Jesus and to us. And yet, Jesus will meet you before the mission is complete. He will be with you every step of the way. See the last bit there? That ultimately, this is because we're united to the teacher. We're united to the master. Our fate is sealed up with his. Because also what you see in the midst of this, not just what they would expect, but you see the offense of the message. You see the offense of the message. That, ultimately, there is a greater consequence we saw in verse 15 for rejecting Jesus than what we presently see. And yet at the same time, what we declare is provocative. It is offensive. Now we have to take that into account because if we're going to live shrewdly like snakes and, and live innocently like doves, we have to be aware of just how offensive that message is. And I share this with you on a regular basis. I have a ton of opinions. I have a ton of opinions, and my goal is to leave them off the table because they might just offend you unnecessarily. I don't want to offend you unnecessarily because every single week I'm compelled to tell you one of the most offensive things. That you and your sin are dead, depraved, and separated from God for all eternity. 
but for the grace of God that came in the flesh as a perfect man, Jesus, who died in your place and was resurrected on the third day, you are lost. And that's offensive because, frankly, some of you think you're really something and you really think you got this. And when I tell you, you don't, that Jesus does, that starts as an offense. And so here, I know, you might reject that. That might seem offensive, but, but as we saw last week, Trey helped us see, like, there's, there's a way to be rejected for Jesus, and there's a way to be rejected because we're not, we're not very nice people. And so to you, maybe you're not a Christian, you have a lot of stories, or maybe you are a Christian, you have a lot of stories of hurt that you've experienced in the church. I just want to say, I'm sorry, show mercy to us. We often don't live in a way that's perfectly aligned with the beauty of our message. Our lives don't add up, and I don't want that to disappoint you. I want that to I want that to even provoke you to think like, well, thank God Jesus is the one who does this and not them. Right? But, but on, on the other hand, like, the, the way I would compel you to think about this is as the message is offensive, and be invited to consider the possibility, right? Just what would it look like if the gospel was the most offensive thing about you? Right? What would it look like if people in your life were offended by the gospel, by your radical posture of repentance and trust in Jesus? Rather than, right, fill in the blank with whatever you experienced the other day with your family around the Thanksgiving table, right? That's provocative, isn't it? That we would become people more and more like Christ, that that our opinions would be be something we shed and throw to the side to, to keep the offense of the gospel at the front. After all, look at how they're to respond, even if they're rejected. Did you notice he says, don't alter the strategy. Move on. Now, this is helpful because many of us are like, we're like, well, let's, all right, let's dig in our heels, right? You, this isn't working. You're going to reject me. Fine. I'm not going anywhere. No, that's not what he says. He says, that's okay. Move on. Move on. I'll meet you wherever you go next. And he allows them to be sent to the next place. Now, as an encouragement to many of you, just think in terms of what that might mean for where Jesus is right now unsettling you in your own place to send you to where he's going to meet you and cause you to be fruitful and effective. Now, be very, be very clear before I say what I say here is that the Bible never gives an example of anyone leaving something behind or being called away from something without first being called to something. Right? So beware. I've heard a lot of Christians kind of like, well, the Lord's released me from that. I'm like, okay, to what? Right? I mean, from the very beginning, the first promise that, that God gives even to Abraham, right? I'm going to bless you, and you're going you're to bless the nations. Now, get up and go, right? Leave. Where? I'll show you. Okay, right? God always calls us to a place. God always calls us to himself, right? And whenever we're kind of like slowly and steadily looking back to where we used to be, the Bible has a word for that. It's called wandering, It's what the Israelites did for an entire generation, and we serve a God who is content to let that generation die so that the next generation heeds his calling. And so for us, we are called to something. Jesus called first his disciples to himself and then sent them off. And so as a result, the way that we experience being sent points to something. It points to a greater blessing that we don't have to dig in our heels And so here's where I'll say something to many of you. Right now, you might be miserable in your current workplace, family, or whatever, and it might just be so that you will loosen your grip on this and go where God is sending you. 
After all, what did it say they would experience? They'd experience rejection, persecution. And they were free at that moment to go, all right, God's calling us to this. And go to the next town. And so for many of you right now, your life might be miserable. It might be terrible. I wouldn't even want to dismiss that. You're like, my life's terrible. And I'd be like, it's possible. You, know, you won't hear me say, like, oh, it's not that bad. It's, it might be terrible. And here's what's true. Jesus won't leave you. And this might be a way of Jesus sending you to the next place. And you can face that, as scary as it might be, because you know that wherever Jesus is sending you, he's already there. What will I say or do? I'll show you. So persecution then says something about Jesus. It says something in the way that these people are sent and how they would experience adversity. It says something about the nature of God. Now, the best example of this is in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 8. In the first books, uh, in the first chapters of Acts, Jesus says, hey, I need you to share the gospel here in Jerusalem and to go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And what did they do? They stayed in Jerusalem. They were like, I'm not going, it's, they, I'm not going out there. We're staying right here. Until what happens? Acts chapter 6, the first martyr, Stephen, is handed over and he is killed publicly in a brutal fashion in a way that glorifies Jesus. But what does it say happened for the next three chapters? That because the persecution arose, what did they do? They started obeying Jesus. <laughs> they went to Judea, Samaria, Enzi of the earth, and crossed oceans to where now you and I are an ocean and continents away in South Dakota in 2022 talking about Jesus. And how did that happen? Some people were too miserable to sit still. And so in Acts chapter 8, you get this beautiful picture of the, the disciples of Jesus. It says they were at that point, because persecution arose, it says that they went from town to town proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And so, friend, that might be what is going on, because even in our suffering, we tell something about Jesus. You tell something about who God is and what God is like, namely that his presence is more important than our comfort and prosperity. After all, last week we saw the mission is the most valuable thing we have. Did you hear what he says? Don't, he says, don't stock up for yourself all these things that you think you might need. The mission, friend, is the most valuable thing we have. And the mission is more valuable than our stuff. But this week, did you hear this? The mission is the most valuable thing you have. Jesus will meet you in it. And the mission is more valuable than your comforts. And this might shock everyone but the mission is even more valuable. Did you hear those few verses? Than your family, your biological family. So there's opposition to be met. Let me give you some maybe applications and then we'll kind of wrap up. Of what, if this is what we expect and then we're working our way towards how it is that we will endure, how it is that we will handle this opposition, well then let me give you a couple of applications on the way there. First and foremost, the local and global church is measured by sending capacity rather than seeding capacity. This is not original with me, but nothing ever is, so let's go with it. Uh, this is attributed to a bunch of people, but think of like my prayer for our church in light of Matthew chapter 10 is that many of you might think that following Jesus is what you're doing right now, gathering together. And praise God that you're here. We're renewed by good news. We're invigorated by spiritual family that pick us up and, and we lean on them. These are good things, and yet they are only valuable insofar as we become what God has created us to be in Matthew 10, not when we are gathered, but when we are scattered. And I would hate for you to think 
that being a faithful and obedient follower of Jesus can be measured in the hour and a half that we spend in this building. Rather than what you know to be true, the real challenge of following Jesus happens the minute you leave. And so, friend, my only only good in the world is how much I can equip you for that. And so beware of the temptation to think that, in light of chapter 10, we're somehow winning because we've gathered together in this place. We're winning when we're on mission, facing our fears and experiencing Jesus' presence. And so just know that's what I'll be praying for. And that's what I'll constantly be annoying you, (laughs) sorry, agitating you with. Go! Go, but it's, go, but, what, but go, right? Move on. Don't dig in your heels. Should I stand my ground? Should I, I know what I'll do, I'll take over. No, you're a, you're a lamb among the wolves, man. Be innocent as doves. Because ultimately what matters is how you are sent, not how many people we can gather together. This means that in light of what we've already seen, the greatness of the church is not in its size, but its mission. After all, do the math right here in chapter 10. I'm talking about this like it's a really big deal, but he was only talking to 12 people. He was talking to 12 different people. That's it. He was talking to the 12 apostles. He says, be wise, be innocent, beware of men, do not be anxious. But in the end, he's just talking to 12 people. And before he sent them to be dragged, delivered, handed over, family to betray them, to be hated, persecuted, and even falsely accused into this hostile environment. Notice, he's simply saying that you're not entitled to welcome, but that's okay because the most valuable thing about you is the mission that I'm giving you. The most important thing about you is the message I give you to share. And so, not only do we want to be a church that thrives in sending, but we also want to be a church that ultimately realizes that what we have that's most valuable is the message that we have to declare. We're not entitled to welcome. We're not entitled to an easy life, but we are guaranteed that Jesus will be with us every step of the way. In the season of Advent, this means that practically... Jesus came that we might receive him as the one who was rejected. After all, did you, did you hear what, what he said would happen? They'll be handed over, betrayed, persecuted, killed? Who does that sound like? And Advent is a season in which we sit back and simply receive the one who endured all of those things on our behalf. We carry on because we know that Jesus is the one who has taken all of the hostility that we have deserved. Even the very hostility, the very hostility and wrath that our sin rightly deserves. And so, friend, we receive Jesus in this season and every season as the one who was persecuted, as the one who was betrayed, as the one who was beaten, as the one who was even left by the people who should have been with him the whole time. We can be sent as those among wolves because he, we know he was the one who was sent among wolves. And it will be difficult. It will be painful. You're entitled to no welcome. So, Does the danger of being sent into a hostile environment scare you a little bit? Does the cost, this is is wild, 
Christmas is usually not a Christ-centered event. It's a family-centered event. And even then, it's a child-centered event, right? And it's just like the most important thing in Christmas is to be with your family. And whatever you do, don't, don't spoil the mystery and magic for children at Christmas, right? It's like, oh, have you, have you felt this? And so does the thought of losing your family seem a bit high? Does it? then now you've begun to know what it means that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Because after all, the easier way, if you found an easy way to to be a Christian, if you can make following Jesus as cheap as possible, then this season of Advent will mean very little. And I'll be here in January to comfort you as you are dealing with how disgusting and disappointing it was. (laughs) It just didn't live up to the hype. Yeah, I know. Me too. Look to other things, right? Look to the wrong things. Have you ever shared the gospel and been rejected? No. Because you're too afraid to talk about Jesus? Then this whole conversation about Jesus coming will seem silly. Right? What are you going on and on about? Have you crafted a world full of people that look, talk, and act just like you? Then Advent for you will be very, very small. We receive Jesus as the one who relinquished all the wealth of heaven, who generously gave of himself to be received amidst the greatest possible hostility. Jesus is the one who is sent to those who would reject him, and yet as one who was not abandoned by the Father. So I want to ask you, do you think you're above this? Do you think you're above, oh, my family's going to make it. Do you think you're above losing your family for Jesus? Do you think you're above being ridiculed by people around you? Do you think you're above all the things that Jesus says we might expect? Does it sound like you might be above those things because you're American? Are you above those things because of the family you were born into? Are you above those things because of fill in the blank? All these things about you, and they make you above this kind of thing? Then friend... Here, verse 24 and 25, servant's not above his master. It's enough. It's enough to be like Jesus. It's enough to experience pain and suffering because he'll meet us in it. It's enough. So, all of this is a, a way to endure. How, how, how do we do this? Why, why would you, right now you might be thinking, why would I endure this? Why would I sign up for this? This sounds terrible, right? You just ruined Christmas. You just, right? All right, hang with me. Think like a dove and think like a snake. See the innocence of the dove, right? The cuddliness, the beauty of the dove. Again, no one's threatened by a dove. And yet see the sneakiness, right? I, even as I think about it, the slithering, creepy Right? I've never seen a snake from a long way away. Um, you only see snake when you're way too close for comfort. Right? You're like, go! Right there. Would have liked if he'd have waved from a distance. Right? Picture that. Picture how, that's you, how you and I are called to live. Shrewdly. Not foolishly. Because after all, you can, you can kind of err on one side or the other. You can become so much like a dove that you're naive right? and non-confrontational. Maybe that's you. You're like, I don't want to make anyone mad. And that can make you naive, apathetic, uncaring. And yet at the same time, you can be so snake-like that you become manipulative, right? You become cruel 
and uncaring. And he, he, po- he poses to us a paradox of something that is so safe and welcoming and warm and non-threatening, and yet something that is so crafty and cunning. And I know you might find yourself thinking, there's no way I could be that. I'm, I'm too much of this or too much of that. And friend, you might wonder, how is, how, is, how is it that I'm going to endure all of this? Friend, look to Jesus. See the innocence of Jesus. I'll close with this in a moment when we send, when we're sent out. See the innocence of Jesus being silent like a sheep before the shearer. As he was falsely accused, see the innocence of And yet, see the cunning of Jesus on the cross. Like a cunning dove, or like a cuddly snake, Jesus has come to be with us in the mission. He was silent like a sheep before the shearer, and yet he was cunning. Go with me to that moment when Jesus went to the cross and see the dove-like qualities of the lamb before the slaughter. Can you, can you see the interaction? Jesus giving himself over to death. Not resisting it. Not fighting it. And giving himself over to death. And you can hear Jesus kind of lean in and softly say to death, I want you to remember you wanted this. Because see also the cunning nature of the cross. It's kind of sneaky, isn't it? Right? As, as Jesus gives himself over to death, you, it's almost like you can see death pick up Jesus' dead body and begin to carry him to the pit. And on the way, he mutters to himself, there's no way this is not going to work, right? Do you see the cunning nature of Jesus? Do you see the cunning nature of Jesus? Ephesians says that Jesus, as he, as he came back and set free the captives, there's this picture that he knocked down the walls of the prison as if he went into death like a cunning snake. And as he kicked open the doors and brought the captives free, all the walls fell down. Can you see the cunning nature of Jesus and the beauty of the mission when you see the cross? I hope from now on, every time you come in and out of this building and you see the cross right outside, you begin to see the dove-like and snake-like character of Jesus on our behalf. The emblem of torture and betrayal and humiliation and shame is now, in a really cunning way, our symbol of hope. And like a cunning dove, he will turn your shame, he will turn your guilt, he'll turn your wounds, your scars, he'll turn your secret fears, your own broken dreams, and to stories and symbols of hope, trophies of his victorious grace. I know you can't see it right now, but carry on in the mission. Look to him. Look to him as the one who came to be rejected. He'll meet you out there. He'll give you the words that maybe you don't have right now. And it's enough to be like the master. It's enough to be united with the one who like a dove and like a snake defeated the enemy on your behalf and mine. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the good news of Jesus that he sends us out to be on mission with him, not as though we have anything of, in and of ourselves, but because he has defeated the enemy for us. He is where we are sent to go. God, would you revive us with that encouragement now? 
Maybe for many in the room who feel like you're distant and far off, would you draw near to them? Would you show yourself as the one who was betrayed and handed over, who was falsely accused so that we would experience hope? Maybe especially for those in the room that wouldn't call themselves a Christian, might even today they consider the mystery of Jesus. That great victory and hope could come through great devastation and suffering. For the rest of us, help us to now in light of Jesus, with their eyes fixed upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith, might we step out to have spiritual conversations, to care deeply for the hurt that, are, for the hurt that is around us, and to unwaveringly declare the good news of a king that's come to make all things new. Might you renew us with the promise that you will meet us out in the mission. After all, you're already there. There's nowhere we can go that you're not already waiting. Would you renew us with that courage this morning? Might we gather and be equipped and inspired to to see you as the one who was rejected and be willing to now be rejected and be cast off? Because this message and hope that we have is more valuable than anything this world could offer. This eternal kingdom and this loving king who laid down his life for us is greater than anything any kingdom of the world would have to promise us. Thank you that you give this to us in Jesus. It's his name we ask it and receive it. Amen.